I think a lot of people, when they hear that a physician must use their judgment to make a serious decision, they might feel a little intimidated by that. But it's important for your listeners to understand that that's what physicians do every day, all day long. For both a curbside consult series by the American Association of Pro-Life Obstetricians and Gynecologists, where medical professionals answer your questions about what it means to provide evidence-based, life-affirming health care to both pregnant women and their preborn children. We know that every day in your practice and on your rotations, you face clinical situations that are challenging. We've all called a curbside consult when we need a quick second opinion on the best course of action for our patient. This podcast series is meant to serve as a curbside Side consult for you as you face ethically challenging patient care scenarios. Hear from experts on how they approach these situations and tips for how to think through them. Because we know that your lives are busy, we keep each episode short enough for you to listen to on your work commute so you have the support and information you need when you need it. We upload new episodes every Thursday. I'm your host for today, Miriam Diallo. After Roe v. Wade was overturned about a year ago, one narrative that took off among pro-abortion advocates is that in states with regulations on legal abortion, physicians won't be able to end pregnancies when their patients are facing complications that threaten the mother's health. A viral tweet that captures this argument says, The treatment for an ectopic pregnancy is abortion. The treatment for a septic uterus is abortion. The treatment for a miscarriage that your body won't release is abortion. And if you can't get those abortions, you die. This concern has seemingly been supported with news stories of patients recounting negative experiences trying to receive emergency care for pregnancy complications, experiences that many attribute to the abortion laws in those patients' states. Here to address this conversation about what is and isn't an abortion is a physician who serves women facing high-risk pregnancies and yet does not perform abortions, Dr. Jeffrey Wright. Dr. Wright is a board-certified maternal fetal medicine specialist in North Carolina. He completed his MD and a residency and fellowship at the University of Texas Medical School in San Antonio, where he co-founded that institution's first fetal diagnostic unit and developed the institution's capability in fetal echocardiography, fetal Doppler, and umbilical cord sampling. Later, he founded the first maternal fetal medicine practice in southeastern North Carolina, where he has cared for pregnant patients and their unborn children since 1990. Our listeners should bear in mind that we are not giving legal or medical advice in our discussion today. Dr. Wright, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So first question, what are your thoughts on the tweet that I just quoted? Is it true that the treatment for those conditions is abortion? And if not, what is an abortion? Well, there's a couple things that they mentioned in the tweet. For example, ectopic pregnancy, a pregnancy that's located outside the uterine cavity. The treatment for that has never been considered an abortion. It's just a standard medical care. In miscarriage, the spontaneous loss of a pregnancy, many times that process is not complete and needs to be assisted along. Uh, that's not an abortion either. That's good to know. So what do you think of the various laws across the country that regulate abortion? Well, I think it's important for everyone to understand that an abortion sometimes involves the use of surgical procedures and surgical instrumentation, and other times an abortion involves the use of significant medications. Um, so there's risk associated with those procedures and medications. There are things that need to be done to evaluate a patient before those medications or procedures are used. 
So when it comes to regulations, people can get upset about that kind of thing. But the fact is that states regulate all kinds of things like tattoos. States regulate haircuts. So the, the proper regulations protect the public and ensure that these things are done under safe conditions. So it's perfectly appropriate for states to regulate something that is, is as significant as an abortion. You mentioned a minute ago that the treatment for an ectopic pregnancy is not an abortion. So what is an abortion? Wow, that is a great question. And it, it's something that's gotten really muddied. Um, you know, when you look at the medical and scientific definition of abortion, it, it just means a pregnancy that ends before 20 weeks. On the other hand, in our, our common language, uh, you know, the word abortion refers to the intentional termination of a pregnancy where there's a living pregnancy that would have otherwise progressed to a newborn baby had that procedure not been performed. So the difference in what we use in our common language and then the, the difference between that and the scientific language is really quite significant. And it's only the latter of those two examples that you have a moral objection to? Exactly. And I would take it a step further. You know, we clearly encounter situations where there's a living fetus and there's also a disease that is a danger to the mother's health. The most common examples of that kind of thing are an infection in the uterus, severe bleeding, or severe elevations in blood pressure. Now, most often, it's important to understand that those situations occur at a time in pregnancy when the baby can survive outside the mother. And so we simply deliver the baby and our pediatrics colleagues treat the newborn. Now, if those situations occur before fetal viability, very often the fetus has already died. So if the fetus has already died, well, clearly that's not an abortion either. Now, occasionally there is a threat to the mother's health. That threat is there and the fetus is still alive. And we recognize that we need to end that pregnancy to protect the mother's health. Now, when we do that, we do not consider that procedure to be an abortion. When we're speaking about it to each other uh, as physicians and when we're speaking about it to our patients and our families, we might use the word termination of pregnancy. Uh, we might use a term like we need to end the pregnancy. Uh, so we avoid using uh, the word abortion uh, because of the connotations related to it. So there's, there's clearly situations where even pro-life physicians know fully well that the fetus needs to be delivered, that the uterus needs to be empty uh, in order to protect the health of the mother. And we are certainly prepared to do that. That's that's really important to know. One objection that a lot of people have had is the point that often in terms of the procedure, like the surgical procedure, there's no difference between the procedure used to end an otherwise healthy pregnancy and the one used to, for example, clear out a miscarriage. Are those not the same thing? Well, that's another great point. You know, procedurally, these things are very similar. For example, a patient who's suffered a miscarriage where the embryo has been partially passed uh, or is not alive and hasn't been passed at all, where a surgical procedure would be necessary instead of a, a medication-based procedure. You know, perhaps the cervix is dilated, or perhaps it's not. Perhaps it needs to be dilated surgically. Situations where we would use a, a curette either with a, a vacuum or a, a stainless steel kind of curette to empty the uterus. Um, those procedures are the same, really, whether uh, the, the fetus is living or whether the fetus has died. But you're saying there's a difference of intent, correct? Yes, yes. That's the key right there. So the difference between an elective abortion 
in a procedure done to terminate a pregnancy for medical reasons. The difference here is the intent. So let's talk about the most common situation where this question comes up. I mean, the most common situation uh, would be the patient with a pre-viable pregnancy where the baby is not old enough to live outside the mother. And when there are ruptured membranes where the bag of water has broken and she has an infection inside the uterus. Now, we know that under those circumstances, the infection will advance and will take the life of the mother if the uterus is not emptied. So we would use the same medications and the same surgical instruments as would be used in an elective abortion. But the intent there is completely different. The intent of the elective abortion is to end the life of the fetus. The intent of these uh, medical procedures that we use in, in uh, these situations where the mother is at risk, the intent there is to, to save the life of the mother, and maybe not so dramatically uh, to, to say that. It's simply to protect the health of the mother. So the intent uh, is to treat an underlying disease process, right? The intent is not to terminate the life of the fetus. And uh, in distinction to that, the elective abortion, the whole intent there is to terminate the life of a, of a living fetus. So an abortion electively done, that's distinct from these medical procedures we use to treat these medical conditions. It's distinct ethically. It's distinct morally. Dr. Wright, have you read any of the state-level abortion laws out there? For example, your state's North Carolina's? Uh, if so, what do you think of them? Do you think the language is confusing at all? Well, I would say that legal language, you know, could be challenging for anyone, you know, who's not a lawyer, probably for some lawyers. And, you know, certainly I'm not giving any legal advice today. And, and you know, Miriam, I, I haven't read every state law there is, right? I mean, I'm a practicing physician, so I haven't read them all. But the ones I have read very clearly exclude situations like ectopic pregnancy and miscarriage care. And then furthermore, and very importantly, these regulations allow the treatment needed to protect the health of the mother. Now, the regulations may use kind of different language. Some of the regulations will use the term medical emergency, but then they'll define what medical emergency is. And, and so these regulations clearly state that the determination of whether or not that condition threatens the life of the mother or threatens the health of the mother, threatens the, the health of, of maybe a maternal organ, the regulations clearly state that that judgment is up to the physician who's attending the patient. So, you know, while the legalese can be confusing for some, the ultimate intent of all of these regulations is clear, and it certainly protects women in those medical situations. So let's dive into the notion of intent a bit. We've mentioned before that the distinction between the kind of abortion that's being done electively versus ending a pregnancy to protect the mother's health is intent. Some abortion advocates have argued, though, that even when performing an elective abortion, the physician's intent isn't necessarily to end the fetus's life. They're simply trying to respect the wishes of the mother who doesn't wish to be pregnant, and the fetus's death is kind of a side effect. Uh, so what would you say to that line of thinking? That type of thinking really relegates the fetus to the status of some kind of object or possession, right? Uh, a human embryo or fetus from the moment of fertilization is completely and fully a separate person and should be respected as such. Mm. Uh, so at this point, 
you would say that every state whose laws you've read with a law regulating abortion allows physicians to treat cases of life-threatening pregnancy complications. Uh, you've mentioned that. In those states, abortion advocates often wonder, though, what counts as a life-threatening pregnancy complication? How do you respond to that objection of when is a mother sick enough to warrant intervention in the pregnancy? Well, I've got a couple of thoughts on that. First of all, these issues that we're talking about, infection, hemorrhage, these kind of types of things are common events in the obstetric world. These are things that obstetricians are trained for starting in medical school. I mean, certainly an obstetric intern in their first year after medical school is trained to identify an infection in the uterus, to recognize hemorrhage that could potentially affect the mother's life. And there are well-prescribed treatment plans for those. So in those situations, that does involve delivery of the fetus. But again, that is not on the same plane as an abortion that's done to end the fetus's life. There's another aspect to that. In my reading of these laws, they all uniformly respect the physician's judgment. Each of these laws I've read make it clear that the determination of whether the mother's life is at risk, that determination is in the hands of the physician. I think a lot of people, when they hear that a physician must use their judgment to make a serious decision, they might feel a little intimidated by that. But it's important for your listeners to understand that that's what physicians do every day, all day long. I mean, even something that seems fairly simple, a sort of simple medical, medical problem like prescribing an antibiotic for a sinus infection, right? So the physician, physician is still responsible for making that proper diagnosis, responsible for selecting the correct treatment. So this is really no different from anything else that we do in, in any area of medicine. We need to be well-trained. We need to be knowledgeable. We need to be careful of the way that we evaluate our patients. We need to be careful in how we recommend a treatment plan. We need to understand as physicians that certainly, regardless of your specialty, there is some possibility that whatever decision you make about anything might be questioned sometime in the future. But using your judgment, that is the, the core, the foundation of, of medical care. Mm, that makes a lot of sense. Can you speak a little bit to your own state, North Carolina's law? I know they recently passed a bill. What do you think about the language there? And does it allow physicians to uh, treat pregnancy complications that women might be facing? Yes, the North Carolina bill uh, clearly states that if there's a medical condition that endangers either the mother's life or the health of the mother, uh, that the pregnancy can be terminated. And the, the, they use the word, the phrase medical emergency, but then in the bill, the definition of medical emergency is clearly given. And again, uh, and like other states, uh, the, the judgment is left in the hands of the, of the physician who's attending that patient. You know, another thing that I'd like to mention about the North Carolina bill is the, the bill regulates uh, abortion, but also provides numerous different funding sources to be supportive of parenthood. Uh, so for those who want to want to criticize the bill for how they feel it might limit uh, abortion, I'd like to point out that, that the state legislature is quite generous in their funding for the support of parenthood. So following the Roe overturn, we've seen a lot of women in pro-life states coming forward recounting concerning experiences uh, at hospitals that delayed or offered subpar care while they were experiencing pregnancy complications. What do you think is happening there? Well, unfortunately, there's a lot of misinformation out there. You know, clearly these reports uh, suggest that some of those caregivers are responding to misinformation. I mean, like the tweet you mentioned earlier. 
I encourage everyone you know, who works in healthcare to read your state's laws, speak with knowledgeable legal professionals if you have any questions, but most importantly, care for your patients. I mean, both of your patients, right? The, the mom and the baby. In a pregnancy, we have two patients there. We have a mother and we have an unborn child. So obstetricians, family medicine doctors, maternal fetal medicine doctors, we've recognized for decades that the fetus is an independent patient. Um, there are so many things we do. For example, the treatment of gestational diabetes, the way we select the medications for that, the way we select medications uh, uh, to adjust uh, blood pressure, you know, to control blood pressure in mothers, where our therapy, it's geared toward getting the healthiest baby uh, that we can, we can possibly get. Think of the technologies we have, like ultrasound, where we're, we're evaluating the fetus. We're, we're looking at, at these unborn children in, in real time, watching their expressions, watching their movements. You, you see all kinds of stuff people post on the Internet. Uh, you know, they're, they're uh, on their, their Facebook or Instagram, and, and they're showing a picture of their, of their unborn baby. So um, clearly, babies, fetuses inside their moms, these unborn children, they're people. They're separate people, and we need to treat them as such when they come in our office. Do you have any other advice for physicians in pro-life states? Maybe they're not used to operating under abortion regulations. What advice would you have for them if they find themselves feeling restricted in their ability to offer treatment to women facing pregnancy complications? Well, these new regulations are focused on elective abortions, right? So they may regulate the type of facility where the procedure can be performed, they may regulate things like cleanliness, availability of emergency procedures and equipment. Uh, they may regulate what kind of education and licensing the person has to have who's prescribing the medical uh, the medication or performing a surgical procedure. You know, uh, in some states, cutoffs involving uh, gestational age. But it's important to understand when you're talking about elective abortions, and, and I mean, terminating a pregnancy in which the fetus would otherwise have continued to grow and deliver as a healthy newborn, those type procedures are not performed by 80 plus percent of OBGYNs in the country. So the fact is that these regulations do not affect the majority of OBGYN practice. Have you ever felt like you weren't able to offer patient care because of your pro-life views? Well, Miriam, let's get this straight. I do not believe that elective abortion, that is intentionally ending a fetal life, I simply don't believe that that is medical care. I, I don't believe that that, that is just uh, another medical procedure that uh, a physician has in their toolbox. Uh, so no, I've never felt that my pro-life beliefs have prevented me from caring for a patient at all. And, you know, to the contrary, my belief in the humanity of unborn children, my conviction that they are people that deserve our love and respect, you know, that fuels my desire to provide the best care that I can for them and their mothers. How do you respond to the critique that legally limiting abortion will limit the ability of OBGYNs to be trained in essential procedures? That's been a narrative that's been going around the media as well. Yeah, and that is completely just preposterous. You know, 20 to 25% of pregnancies end in miscarriage. So miscarriages are extremely common. A lot of those miscarriages aren't complete. So the, the, there is retained 
uh, pregnancy tissue. And so for, for the physicians treating those incomplete miscarriages, as we've said earlier, the procedure is the same as performing an abortion. So there's plenty of opportunities for physician to learn those techniques and methodologies, whether it's medication techniques or, or whether it's a surgical technique. Okay. Okay. Well, that's helpful. So far, we've been speaking about legal restrictions on abortion, but there's also a conversation to be had about the ethics of abortion. Would you say there's a difference between the ethical conversation and the legal conversation on this topic? Oh, yes. There's a very substantial difference between the law and the ethics in this area. I mean, I think the simplest way to say this is to justify the ending of the life of one human being. So, if to justify the ending of a fetus's life, there must be a proportional risk to the mother for that to be ethically acceptable. So that's the ethical viewpoint. But the law is different, right? So the, the ethical viewpoint, you know, you might say that that puts a pretty high bar out there, right? So that's truly saying you're not going to terminate the pregnancy until the mother's life is directly threatened. That's the ethical bar. But these new regulations don't require that, right? They don't require that the medical complication rise to that level of directly and immediately threatening the mother's life. So the fact is that states allow pregnancy termination, not just for life-threatening risk, but also they allow pregnancy termination for complications that place at risk just a single maternal organ. So, um, and that single maternal organ may be the health of the mother's uterus, right? So it, and, uh, and the risk for an infection inside the uterus in a patient who has ruptured membranes, that there is a legal justification for terminating that pregnancy to protect the function of the mother's uterus for her future ability to, to have babies. Um, so clearly, you know, all these medical determinations need to be made on an individual basis, looking at patients as individual people and by the attending physician who's on the scene. And, you know, fortunately, the laws that I've read clearly say that the doctor is the one who makes that judgment. So if you read the regulations, in my view, these regulations empower and support the physician to use their judgment and to provide the necessary medical care while also protecting unborn children from elective abortion. This may warrant another episode where we can dive more deeply into the topic of the ethics of abortion. It's a fascinating topic for sure. Well, thank you so much to Dr. Wright for your insights today. Thank you for being here. And a massive thank you to our listeners for joining us today. If you have any topic requests, you can direct message us on the social media pages linked in the description of this episode. You can also email us at info at aaplog.org. And if you're a medical professional interested in joining this community as a member, you can do so by going to aaplog.org slash join. We will see you next week.